Our scripture today is from the Gospel of Luke, um, verses 25 through 37. It's on, 730, on page 735 uh, of your pew Bible. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road when he saw him as he passed on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And then the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Wasn't that a great word from Barbara Pugh earlier? Very inspiring. And James, I don't care what she says. Where are you, James? You, you, you were never around her growing up. Sunday school teachers can attest to that. Caleb. <laughs> oh, he was always fun. I had a flashback, James, I got to tell you. I remember when I baptized you, and, and if, you, if you've ever been on this side of the baptistry, it's where all the big organ pipes are. And if you're up there before a baptism, do you remember this? And it's, it's like a plane taking off. It's that loud up there. James was the only one I was ever with over there, and he thought it was the greatest thing in the world. This, this, all this noise, he just thought, I could hang up here. So uh, I just have a fond memory of that. The last thing David Sharp ever saw was people passing him by. 34-year-old Cleveland engineer had just summited Mount Everest was now on the descent, was down about a thousand feet and realized that his oxygen tank was going out and he didn't have any more. And he started gasping for air, wound up collapsing into the snow, freezing, writhing in pain, and no fewer than 40 people passed him on the way up. No fewer than 40 as he lay there convulsing, gasping, and ultimately freezing to death. And when they reported this, they interviewed a guy who had scaled all 14 of the 800 or 8,000 plus meter uh, mountains, and, and the gentleman said, oh, this is not uh, uncommon at all. There are people who just think to themselves as they pass by someone who is dying as they're trying to reach the summit, hey, I paid all this money, I put all this time and energy into it, I'm going to reach that summit. You know, he took his, he cast his lot, there it is, sorry, there you go. That was in March of 2006. Just a few months later, LaShonda Calloway, the last thing she saw was people passing her by, in fact, stepping over her. 
She was in Wichita, Kansas, and was walking into a convenience store, and and a person who obviously was one who had erratic behavior, a deranged person, started to attack her, and they had an altercation. She wound up being stabbed several times and was down on the floor of that convenience store, and surveillance cameras later on showed five different people who literally stepped over her to continue looking down the aisles for snacks. One person did stop for just a minute and took a picture of her with his phone. That's just sick, and it caused the police chief of Wichita just to say, what has gone wrong with the world? Where is the respect for life? Now, I want to ask you to put yourself in David Sharp's place for a moment on Everest or in LaShonda Calloway's place there in the store. What if you were that person dying in pain And people passing you by, what would that be like? Wounded, helpless, and dying. Because I wonder if that might be the place where Jesus really wants us to see ourselves in this well-known parable. Now, the Mr. Rogers version of this parable is good. I grew up learning, you know, what's the moral of this? Be a neighbor. Won't you be a neighbor to your neighbors? That's my Mr. Rogers. Okay, okay. I always love it when he threw the shoe. Remember that? Won't you please? I always love that part. Be a neighbor. Be a good Samaritan. Keep in mind, by the way, that we imposed that title upon that story Jesus told. He didn't say, I'm going to tell you the story of the good Samaritan. Let me offer up that a better title for this parable is The View from the Ditch. Because I am convinced that is the perspective from which Jesus wanted this lawyer who asked him the question in the first place. He wanted the lawyer to see himself in that ditch, from that perspective. Because when it gets down to it, this parable is, it's about being a neighbor, but even more so, more foundationally, it's about who is my neighbor. It's more of a question, really. Not be, be a neighbor to somebody, but who is my neighbor. Now, let's go back. An expert in the law asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus throws a question back at him. I love my preacher friend who had a Jewish friend, and he said, why did why Jewish scholars always answer a question with another question? And the guy smiled and said, why not? I just love that. I thought that was very clever. But Jesus said, well, what, what does Scripture say? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He quotes the Hebrew Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4. And he also says there's also that passage of love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, good answer, good answer. You answered correctly. But then you go to verse 29. And so often we skim over that verse, but it is so critical because, because it says, but wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked, and who is my neighbor? Now, what is the law you're wanting to justify? What's he wanting to justify? He just talked about love your neighbor as yourself. Wanting to justify himself, he asked the question, and who is my neighbor? He is wanting to justify what? The limitation of his love toward his own kind, his own ilk, those of the same opinion as him, those who are of his uh, political views, religious views. Those who are of the same color as him, same race, same ethnicity, same behavior, same socioeconomic status. He's wanting to justify the limitation of his love just to a chosen few. And we could even say chosen few because remember, Jesus is addressing this man and a crowd around him that is full of what? Blue blood Jews. 
There is no culture in ancient times that was more obsessed with remaining a homogenous culture than ancient Jews. Read the book of Ezra. It says, so they separated themselves off from the world. I mean, they wanted to be their own people. They didn't want anybody from any other race, ethnicity, go on down the line. Didn't want anybody else messing that up. And that's what this lawyer is about. So he's wanted to justify the limitation of his love just to those people who are like him. And Jesus then throws him this story. But let's you and I contemporize it. And let's say that it's you that winds up in the ditch, okay? Let's say that you are driving from Birmingham to Bessemer, your car breaks down, and someone steps up who claims that they are going to help you, but they wind up beating you up, mugging you, throwing you into a ditch, and you are bleeding, half dead, in deep pain, and wounded, and wondering if you're going to make it. You're wondering if you're going to make it. And let's just say... Given the context in which Jesus is saying this story, let's just say that you happen to be a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Southern Baptist fundamentalist right-wing teapot, I love Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh uh, kind of person, okay? Nuke the whales or whatever, you know, just all that stuff. And the interesting thing is you're lying there half dead, and the first person who comes by you You can tell they're just like you, and they drive, and they slow down. And clearly, this is a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, Southern Baptist, on and on. And not just that, it's a preacher. And they're just like, oh, and he just goes on and keeps whistling a hymn or something. And then another minister comes along, same thing. And this person who is of your ilk, of your color, of your political persuasion, of your socioeconomic status, passes by. How does that feel? How do you feel that you're being passed by by these people who are supposed to be on your team? And then putt-putting up the road comes along this 1969 Volkswagen bus with flower stickers all over it, Woodstock written on it, uh, all manner of, of, uh, what do you call them, bumper stickers with things like, you know, have you hugged a tree today? Flush, rush, you know, uh, pro, pro-choice, you know, pro this, pro that, anti that. All the things that you are pro, they are anti. All the things they are anti, you are pro. And then the person gets out of the car, and it's clearly not a person of your color, not of your ethnicity, not of your nationality, might not even speak your language, definitely from a different socioeconomic status, and just by the way they're dressed, you're like, please don't come near me. But you're half dead, you're half dying, and you don't have a choice in the matter. But when they walk over to you, you're so tempted to say what? Oh, it's just a flesh wound, and then go on. (laughs) You got the reference. God bless you. What are you going to do? Bleed on me? Best part, I know it's horrible. Best part is when all four limbs are off, and he goes, all right, we'll call it a draw. You know what I'm talking about? For those of you who aren't, just don't worry about it. Uh, but that's what you want to say. It's just a flesh wound. Don't bother me. Please don't come near me. You are that person who is antithetical to who I am, what I believe, what I value, what I'm about. You even smell a little strange like, I don't want you near me. But isn't it amazing in Jesus' story because this person leans over to you and thanks be to God, they don't lean over and say, hey, who did you vote for in the last election? Are you pro this or pro that? Anti this, anti that? 
Where are you from? Do you talk strange? Do you smell? I mean, they don't ask any questions like that. Wordless wonder, this person just quietly lifts you up, binds up your wounds, puts you in that 69 Woodstock Volkswagen bus and takes you to the closest hospital and then pays the bill. And Jesus turns to the lawyer. No, he turns to you and says, now who was the neighbor? Who was the neighbor here? And isn't it funny, it, you notice in, in, in the account that the man can't even say the Samaritan. Now, there was, six, there was 750 years of enmity between Jews and Samaritans at that point. They hated each other for 750 years, since around 722 B.C., when Samaritans came about. That kind of animosity, and the guy can't even say it was the Samaritan. Remember, Jesus said, who was the neighbor? And he, Do you remember Happy Days, Fonzie? Hey. Fonzie could never say he was what? Wrong. You ever seen those episodes? Cunningham, I was real. He can't say wrong. This guy can't bring himself to say this. This is, this is the one who showed him mercy. He can't even say Samaritan. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now, does it just say be a neighbor? No, because again, what's going on here? The lawyer was wanting to justify the limitation of his love. Jesus is saying, go and do likewise, realizing that your neighbor is that person who's the person you least want to be around whom you least want to love. That, my friend, is your neighbor. So no way can you justify the limitation of your love because you, are, you yourself are a half-dead sinner in a ditch in need of grace just like that person is. And if you're a Christ follower, thanks be to God that he came and rescued you out of the ditch. And your, your, your primary MO should be the hope that you could help lead that person out of a ditch if they don't know Christ. But how do we do this? What do we, what do we do with this? How do we come to f- love those whom we find most difficult to love? Let me offer two things. First of all, I can't help but go to Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says what? And he applies it to all people. He says, count others as better than yourself, looking to the needs of others rather than your own. Count others better as yourself. It might not even be factual. You know, That person might not be better than you. And yet, you count them as such. Do you hear that? Count others as better than you, even if they're not. Jesus makes that very, very clear. But see, that takes sacrifice. And it gets way out of your, and I know we've said it a million times, but comfort zone. Speaking of sacrifice, what would you have to show in your life that shows that you sacrificed on behalf of somebody that you really didn't want to sacrifice for? Is there something you've done, something you've said, something you've contributed to, whatever it might be, that's a sign of the fact that in spite of my differentness from that person, in spite of all these things about that person that would make me difficult, have difficulty loving that person, I still sacrificed enough to reach out to them, no matter how poor, no matter how different, no matter who they are. What sign would you have in your life? For Mother Teresa, it was her feet wonderful book by Shane Claiborne called The Irresistible Revolution. Anybody heard of that book? It's a wonderful book. Uh, Shane uh, served one summer in the slums of Calcutta, ministering to uh, the lowest of the low, at least in Indian culture as perceived. They were the untouchables, some of whom had leprosy, some of whom had other diseases, some of whom were just so poor or malformed or whatever that nobody wanted them. They were the castaways. 
And they had been cast off into this mission in this slum in Calcutta where Mother Teresa was. Shane Claiborne spent a summer there with her. And he said, when I got back to America, every day people asked me, what was Mother Teresa like? And he said he swore that people just thought that she glowed in the dark, you know. But no, he just said she was short and wrinkled and precious and sometimes ornery, which I just love. But he said there was one thing he never forgot, and it was her feet. He said they were deformed. And he said they were just so malformed. And he said every morning when they all went to Mass together, he would look over at her feet, and they were just so unsightly. But he decided, you know, that's not, and, and he just couldn't get that out of his mind, but he thought, you know, this is Mother Teresa. I'm not going to go up and say, hey, Mother, what's up with the feet? He said, I'm not going to do that. But fortunately, a few weeks into his ministering there, one of the other sisters sidled up to him and said, I, I noticed you were looking at her feet. He said, yeah. He said, you know, I even wondered if she had leprosy herself or something that was in the early stages or something. She said, no, no, no. You don't understand. She's deformed because of the donated shoes we get. He was like, what do you mean? He said, mother does not want anyone to get stuck with the worst pair. Uh, Oftentimes we'll get this wave of shoes that comes in, and mother does not want anyone to be stuck with the worst pair of shoes. And so she digs through all the shoes and gets the worst pair for herself, and she wears those until they wear out, and they wear down on her feet, and that's why her feet are deformed. Think of that. Years of loving your neighbor as yourself, as herself, and because of that, she had deformed feet. You know, it's it's deformity because of her placing herself behind other people, counting others as more important than herself, looking to the needs of others rather than her own. By being deformed with her feet, she really was being conformed to Christ. And that really is the other thing I would just want to say. You don't just count others as better, as the Apostle Paul says, but you conform to the image of God when you serve others in that way and count that person as your neighbor who is the most difficult person for you to count as a neighbor. God created us out of love, right? I mean, he created us out of love and created us in his own image and think about this, we, do we deserve to even be neighbors of God? We really don't. But he became our neighbor with Christ coming into the world, condescending down into the world to be a part of us. And he became neighbors with us. And I love how John Claypool put it in his wonderful book on the parables, and I, I think the youth are going through it right now, aren't you guys? And, and just a great book. And John Claypool says, based on this parable, when we come upon people we would rather not love, we do not ask, are they worthy? But rather, am I willing to act out the image of God within me? That's really the question. Am I willing to conform to God's image, which is all about love? What would it be like for you to be lying half dead in a ditch like that? What would it be like also to realize that as you were in that ditch, Jesus joined you in that ditch? Jesus joined all of us sinners in the ditch. And, and, and keep in mind, he had every reason to pass us by, and he could have, but he did not. And keep in mind also that he didn't just happen upon us. He sought you out, sought you out, and touched your wounds, bound them up. And he carried you to a place of safety. And he did it with costly compassion that you and I can never, ever repay. 
Now, friends, that's just pure grace. And so on Orphan Sunday, let's rejoice that you and I, who were once lost in a ditch, have now been adopted in grace. Let's pray together. Some of us even now find ourselves in a ditch in some way. We might be struggling with some type of stressor in our life, some health issue. You might find yourself in a ditch emotionally. Uh, You might find yourself in a ditch when it comes to a friendship, a relationship you have. Or there's something else in your life that's just causing you challenge right now, really putting you through a trial. What is it? And may you lift it up to God right now. I want to give you just a moment of silent prayer just to lift up whatever need you have right now back up to God the Father. Will you do that for just a moment? forgive us when sometimes we perhaps inadvertently or on purpose restrict our love to a certain kind of people forgive us when we are impressed with ourselves when we generalize other people away forgive us when we place them in a box and hold them at arm's length and basically judge them in a way that you call us absolutely not to do Remind us of the height and breadth of your love, the depth of your love for all people, no matter who they are, no matter where they've been, no matter what they think, no matter what they've done, no matter where they're from. Lord, make us a church that reaches out to all people. Again, forgive us when our attitude causes us to narrow our circle of love and grace. Help us to be all-encompassing in our love, Lord, for all people. We thank you so much, O God, that you have brought us out of our own ditch of woundedness and brokenness and sin, and we give thanks to you for that again. Lord, all the more reason to reach out even to the most unsightly, (laughs) the loudest, the most annoying, whoever they might be, oh God, help us to be beacons of light that we might talk about you, show them you who pulled us out, bound up our wounds, took us to a place of safety. Help our reach to go all the way to all people. We pray these things in your name. Amen.